0: Our text this morning comes from the third chapter of the book of Romans, if you'd turn there with me, Romans 3. Now Paul is writing to the Roman church, and Paul understands that as he is making his way to Spain, he's actually in uh, Corinth when he writes this letter, he's anticipating a quick visit back to Jerusalem For the Passover and for Pentecost, and then he intends to get on a ship, make his way to Rome, make a brief visit in Rome, and continue on his way to Spain to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his goal. But he's sitting down and he's writing this letter to the church in Rome. Now, Paul understands that as he writes this letter to the Roman church, that if he can effect a change for Jesus Christ, on that church at Rome, because of his centrality of that church, that effect will have an effect upon the entire Roman Empire. And then Paul understands his station in, as an apostle and the times in which he lived, and he knew that if he were to affect such a change in Rome and in the imp- Empire, that this would, in fact, change the course of world history. Paul understood these things, and so Paul writes this message. And the central uh, theme of this message is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, where Paul is introducing this uh, message, and he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous man shall live by his faith. And so Paul is writing to this church in Rome. Now this church in Rome is not dissimilar to our own nation today and the needs of our church today in our own nation. Rome was the most powerful nation in the world, like our own. Rome was filled with elitists that were running that nation, many of whom, like in our own nation today, would be seen as ungodly people. Uh, You see that in Romans chapter one, beginning at verse 18 and following the first few verses, there was a tremendous aberration of sexual promiscuity that was involved in the Roman culture. And in the Roman culture in that day, not dissimilar to our own, uh, the Roman people, when they had a baby that was born and wasn't a baby that they wanted, they would just take it outside the city walls and they would just abandon it and it would be exposed to the elements and the Christian people would summarily go outside the city walls and pick those children up, bring them into their own homes, and raise them as their own. And so we see that there's a great deal of similarity in that time to our own time, and the message that Paul is writing here about the doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ changed the world then, and it's really that message that as we can understand this It is that same message today that we should hold to for the hope of our own nation and for the hope of the world. It's this message here that Paul wants to bring before us clearly. Now, I'd like to read beginning in chapter 3, verse 9 to the end of the chapter. What then? Are we Jews any better off than the Gentiles? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what has become of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who would justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The grass withers, the flower of the grass falls to the ground. But the word of our God abides forever and ever for our comfort, for our instruction, for our correction, for our encouragement, in every dimension of life. Now the central message here in all of the book of Romans is that the person who is righteous by faith in Jesus Christ that that person will live, live eternally, and live before the presence or the face of God. This is the central message that Paul is putting before the Roman Church. Now, as we look at it in this particular passage, we can see some clear points here. And the first point that I'd want to call to our attention is that only God and Jesus Christ are righteous— Then the second thing that we need to see is that man in and of himself is unrighteous. And then the last thing we want to say is that this scripture is teaching us clearly that the person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, the person who is in Jesus Christ by faith, is counted by God the Father as righteous, is given the gift of eternal life, And that person will live before God for all eternity. These are the things that we find in this elaboration of Paul's central message of justification by faith. Now, when we say that only God and Jesus Christ are righteous, we can just scan down these verses and see what it says in verse 21. It's the righteousness of God verse 22 the righteousness of god and then it speaks about his righteousness in god's righteousness this whole section is an elaboration of that central theme found in chapter 1 verse 16 the righteousness of god is revealed from heaven and this is what we need to understand as we look at this passage of scripture now Paul is picking up this theme, and he's expanding it. And in the Romans' church, what he is saying to them in this passage of Romans is this, that God is the God who created the whole world. He created it. It was all very good. It was a reflection of his character. The world was good as it was created, and man was very good as he was created and put into the garden. God had done this, and because God had done this, it demonstrates to everyone of his righteousness in his character and his power and his ability. And he did this for his own glory. The second thing that we see as we move through the epistle is that God created the nation of Israel. And God created the nation of Israel by calling out of the world Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the patriarchs, and he made promises to them. Now, righteousness in a person is going to be determined to a great degree on the words in which the person speaks in the way the person carries out the things that they say. And God had made tremendous promises to these patriarchs. I will be your God and I will be the God of your children forever. And God had made that promise. Now, a part of this letter, and you see it in the language that comes from chapter 1 and continues twice in the passage that I've just read, is that he's constantly saying these things are to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God, from the time of Pentecost on, at Pentecost he saved a vast number of Jewish people. As Paul went out, he went to the synagogues and he preached to the Jews first and then he preached to the Greeks. And all through the New Testament period, Jews came to faith in mass all around the Roman world. And ever since the time of the close of the apostles, you have seen Jewish people coming to faith. Sometimes they come individually, sometimes they come in a family, sometimes it seems like they come in a whole colony of people. But they come to faith, but God's still not done. We see in Romans 9 through 11 that, that Paul is going to talk about God's promises to truly save a large number of the people of Israel at the end of time. God's promises are a reflection of his righteousness, and he will accomplish the things that he says he will do. And Paul is making this very clear here. But then, too, God gave in righteousness his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He had promised the Messiah. He sent his Son to be the Messiah. And Jesus Christ fulfilled that role to the glory of God. And he is in the process of saving the whole world through this Son, his Messiah. Now, on the cross, on the cross is the preeminent way in which Paul is going to elaborate and display the righteousness of God. On that cross, God took the sins of all humanity and placed them upon His own dear Son, the one who had come into the world holy and righteous, the one who had lived a perfect life, and the one who gave Himself up to be a sacrifice. The father takes the sins of all those who would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and lays them on his son and punishes them in his place so that his righteous judgment on sin would be fully executed in his righteous gift. Would be made an offering to all who believe that if you will put your faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, then God will be just in giving you that righteousness that was accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ in his life and in his death. But then the righteousness of God goes beyond that because God had promised certain things in righteousness to his own son. And his son did, in fact, live a holy and blameless and innocent life. And as a result of that, after three days in the tomb, God vindicated his son by raising him up from the dead. And he gives his son something that he had never possessed before until the moment of his resurrection. He gave his son the gift of eternal, immortal life. And that accrued to him as the result of the resurrection. As Paul says in chapter 1, verse 4, he was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, who has become, as a result of this, our Lord. But even beyond that, we see the righteousness of god demonstrated because he elevated his son to sit at his right hand and this son now has accomplished another thing that had never been accomplished before and that is that a human person with a body like yours like mine but with the gift of eternal life has now entered in directly to the presence of god been accepted and taken his seat at the right hand of god and is the object in that respect not only of our faith but of our hope the hope that we will be able in righteousness in a resurrected body to live eternally in the presence of god this is what god has accomplished in righteousness these are the things that uh, paul is explaining here as he writes the book of Romans. Now, Paul didn't always believe these things. As Saul of Tarsus, certainly he believed that God created the world in righteousness. Certainly he believed that God had created Israel in righteousness. And certainly he believed that God had promised the Messiah in righteousness. But he did not believe that Jesus was that Messiah. He did not understand that. He rejected that. But then there came a momentous time and really a hinge in history when the the Lord Jesus Christ interrupted Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road. And when that bright light shone around him, Saul of Tarsus knew instinctively that that was the Shekinah glory of God manifesting itself to him visibly. And in that light, he saw a person. And then he, he speaks and he says, Lord, who art thou? And Jesus speaks to him and says, I am Jesus whom thou art persecuting. And when Saul understood what Jesus had said to him and comprehended the nature of this, this appearance, he was instantly comprehending that Jesus is the righteous God incarnate in that he has seen him in a glorified representation. Saul became a changed person at that very moment. Now, I'm trying to follow a bit of an outline that repeats itself in the book of Romans, which is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we have a representative Jew that's convinced of the glory of Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his holiness. But what we see is that Paul, as he moved around around the Roman world, had a traveling companion. And that traveling companion was Luke, who was a Gentile. And so Luke learned all these things from Paul, but also he did his own investigations as a medical professional and as a, a, a competent historian. And he wrote that gospel, and that gospel from the time when the angels declare that the one who is born is to be the righteous son of God to the end where Christ is raised from the dead and as they see him ascend into heaven, this Gentile comes to understand Jesus's divinity and Jesus' perfect righteousness as well. We more, now I'm saying this and I'm trying not to overplay it, but I, I do mean this we've got to comprehend what this means the righteousness of god and the righteousness of god in jesus christ and we've got things that are against us here and that keep us from really wanting to do this and one is our own pride we really you know we really think that we're special and most of us elevate ourselves so paul have to say at the end of this epistle don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to That is a reflection of the problem that we bear. We tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. So that becomes an impediment to accepting the righteousness of God and the righteousness of Christ. A second thing that comes into this is that we we look at this from our own personal experiences. And sometimes we have had awful experiences in our life. We have experienced pain, we have experienced tragedy, we have experienced suffering, and we call into question the righteousness of God, we call into question His goodness, and we say, how could a holy God, how could a good God, how could a righteous God, we say it a lot of different ways, allow something like this to happen? Well, you know, when you open the Scriptures from the very beginning, To the very end, the scriptures are replete with examples of people who genuinely loved God, trusted him with all their hearts, and God led them through some incredibly excruciating personal experiences. These people took these things and took them to God with questions of why? took them to God with questions of I don't understand, took them in prayers and said, help me. And God did help them. In, in the cases that we have in the scripture, these people came out of the other side of pain and suffering and tra- tragedy with a deeper appreciation of the righteousness, the holiness, and the goodness of God. And that's the way we have to move through that too. We cannot let our own personal experiences interpret our understanding of who God is. Now, there's another problem that is both ancient and modern that is a problem to our understanding and accepting the righteousness of God. And it could be best spoken of by the, the modern way of speaking of the yin and the yang. Now, sometimes you'll see this idea represented on tattoos on men's arms, sometimes on women's arms of the yin and the yang. Sometimes you'll see it in the back window of an SUV. Sometimes you might see it on the face of a watch, a symmetrical design in which exactly half of this circle is black and half of this circle is white. What is this? This is the representation of the the Oriental concept of life called the yin and the yang. In in life, there is light. In life, there is shadow. In life, there are good things that happen. In life, there are bad things that occur. There are ecstasies. There are tragedies. Life is balanced. Why, it sounds so wise. But where did this begin? It begins with a human philosophy who looks at life and then says that's what God's like. It looks at life and wants to explain it. And so since life appears this way, that's what God must be like. And when we interpret our worldview that way, we are in a desperate case. Listen to what John says in 1 John one five: God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Hear what James says when he says, Every good gift and every perfect thing given comes down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation and no shifting of shadow. Our God is holy and righteous why is there pain and suffering we live in a fallen world but we can't from a fallen world properly interpret a righteous God by ourselves we have to have the scriptures now the second thing I'd want to call our attention to is the unrighteousness that is in man and again you see this in Romans 3 23 when it says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And this is what we find in Romans 3, beginning in verse 10. But, you know, you've probably read that, and you've probably read it too quickly. But I would really want you to look at it with a level of patience. When it says that there is no one righteous, not one, that no one understands It's talking about your mind. When it says no one seeks after God, it's talking about your heart. When it says no one does good, it's talking about your actions. Then there's a litany of terms here that speak about the organ of the mouth, the throat, the tongue, the lips. The mouth. And then you come up and you see it speaking about the feet and then the eyes. There's a comprehensiveness here. Unrighteousness and sin has touched every dimension of man's life. Apart from Christ, men are unrighteous. The Pharisees were Jews. They saw themselves as exceedingly righteous. From the time they first heard Jesus, they chose to set themselves against Jesus. Did they know their heart? These ones who set themselves against Jesus ultimately crucified Jesus. Do you think they truly understood themselves? At one time, Paul had to give his defense between, before Felix and Festus, who were Romans, Gentiles by and large. Paul is speaking to them, giving his defense. They didn't want to hear this it was cutting into their personal psychology and spirituality, and they cut him off, and they said, Saul, your great learning has driven you mad. A Gentile group, so wise, so fallen. This is the way we are. A person who simply wants to trust too much in themselves will not believe the gospel message about righteousness from God and righteousness that comes to us through Jesus Christ. He'll believe in himself every time. He'll turn from Christ. They'll turn their own things, tell us what they've done, and they'll do just what Paul says here they'll boast this is who I am would that we could look at something like Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 if you've been raised up with Christ keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God set your mind on the things above and not the things that are on earth that's the only correction That's the only correction for our pride. We have to look to where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now the third thing I'd like us to see this morning is that man in Jesus Christ, God justifies. God declares this man as righteous in his sight. Again, you see this in verse 22 you see this in verse 24 justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus again all of this is an expansion Of the central idea of Paul's gospel that he opens up to us in verses 1 16 and 17. We have got to see that Paul is not departing from this as an outline for his book. So when we look at the man Jesus Christ we see God's Son and what has he done? He has become incarnate for us and for our salvation. He lives a perfect life. He goes around doing good. The miracles are signs to show his divinity. And yet, he is tremendously persecuted, tremendously misunderstood. This man, then, as the Son of God, allows himself to be arrested. He's put on trial. He is condemned by the Jews. He is condemned by the Gentiles. Together, they put him on the cross. And on that cross, the Father pours out the wrath of God that was meant to fall on us. It falls on his Son. And that wrath of God that falls on his Son is as it says in Isaiah 53, it crushes him. But Jesus does not merely die, but he gives up his life on that cross. He gives himself up in death in order that he would not merely be put to death, but that he would actively die for your sin and my sin. And Jesus, the crucified, again, God vindicated, raising him from the dead, giving him the Holy Spirit to give to all those who believe in him the gift of eternal life. The record that was his record, a record of righteousness. That's what is given to us, and the forgiveness of our sins. Now in closing, how possibly did this change the world? How is this possible that this message changed the world? There was a time when the Pharisees found Jesus' disciples. They were eating food with unclean hands. And Jesus made this simple analogy. Clean the inside of the cup. Clean the inside of the cup, and the outside will take care of itself. What would it be, what would it be for you internally, spiritually, to believe that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had cleaned the inside of your cup? What difference would that make? You're you're on the inside transformed. You're on the inside a new person. You have been given the Holy Spirit. You have eternal life. If this, this reality took hold on you, Would you act differently tomorrow? Would you actually act differently tomorrow? I think the answer you know. If that were true, what would it be true if it was not only true of a couple, but if it was true of the core of Christian people in the church at Rome? Why that would make a difference in Rome. And what if that spread throughout the entire Roman culture and there began to be pockets of people all around the Roman Empire who knew that internally they were righteous, accepted by God. Wouldn't they in their civil affairs, in their marital affairs, in their parental affairs... In their affairs as children wouldn't that make a huge difference this is what changed the world not in the eyes of the world but in the eyes of God that they were justified forgiven cleansed renewed and empowered through the righteousness of Jesus Christ in their entire being Let that come into our hearts and minds and let it transform us as we go out into this world. Let's pray. Now, Father, these are the words that Paul sought to bring before the church then and would have brought before the church today about what you do, what you did in his life. You changed him. He was entirely different. He changed the world. Paul believed that could happen in an astronomical way if all the people that named the name of Christ knew and saw themselves as he, Paul, saw himself. Now bless us in these things in Christ's name. Amen.